Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, I'd invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Hebrews, and we'll begin in chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. All of us, as Christians, there's no debate, uh, we struggle with some persistent sins. Uh, that's not really the question. If we're honest about our walk with the Lord and we're humble about uh, the condition of our lives, while we know uh, that through the death of Christ, the penalty of sin has been removed and destroyed, uh, we have to admit that the presence of sin is still with us. So what do we do? Uh, we have prayed about our persistent sin. Uh, we have said, Lord, please remove this from my life. We have made promises about our persistent sin. We have said over and over, I will never, uh, whatever our persistent sin might be. Uh, but we haven't made much progress. Uh, at least in some areas, we continue to struggle with persistent sin. And so we know that that's not the Lord's will. What is it that we should do? Well, we've been taking some time these last few weeks and, and searching through the scriptures to try to find the answer. What does God have to say to us when we continue to struggle, when we continue to be frustrated with some persistent sin? And we discovered a few weeks ago that Romans chapter 6 is the key. Maybe the most important chapter in all the New Testament, it tells us that not only has the penalty of sin been destroyed by the death of Christ, but the authority of sin has been destroyed as well. And as Christians, we can embrace the fact that the penalty for our sin has been removed, but we can also embrace this fact, the very authority of sin has been removed. We are dead to sin. And we talked about the importance of knowing that and embracing that. If we're going to overcome persistent sin, it has to start there with us understanding that because of our relationship with Christ, because of his death, we can say no to sin. But then we learned as we worked our way through Romans chapter 6 that it's important not just to know that and to embrace that, but we also have to do a third thing. Because it is possible, though the, the authority of sin has been destroyed, it is possible for sin to reign in our lives. It has no authority to reign, but if we're not careful, it will continue to reign. And so what should we do to take sin off the throne of our lives? And, and the Bible said, Romans chapter 6, that we need to partner with the Holy Spirit. And we partner with the Holy Spirit by taking these God prescribed Holy Spirit empowered habits and if we'll embrace these things then our lives will change little bit by little bit the momentum will build the Bible said that God will take the parts that we offer him our time and our energy and our focus our hands and our eyes and our mouths and all of the things that we offer him and he will use it to little bit by little bit make real change in our lives. And so with that in mind, that we have to declare that we are dead to sin, that we have to partner with the Holy Spirit through these uh, God-prescribed Holy Spirit-empowered habits, what then are those habits? What does the Bible say are the three, four, five, six things that if we will engage in these things, God will begin to make real change in our lives? And we said the first one, and we spent our, a whole hour on it last week, the first one 
is Bible meditation. And we saw last week how the Bible says specifically that when we meditate on Scripture, when we're consistent to meditate on Scripture, that that will lead to sanctification. It will lead to a real change in our lives, especially when it, when it has to do with persistent sins. So the first one is Bible meditation. The second one we're going to see that God prescribes is prayer, prayer. The Bible says if we will pray that God will use, the Holy Spirit will use our consistent prayer life to make some changes, to bring some changes to our lives. And we're going to see this in, um, in a number of places in Scripture, but as we've gone through this series, I've shared with you not just what the Bible says, that'll be the focus of our message this morning, uh, but I've also shared with you what some theologians through the years who are known for their study of Scripture and their insight into these uh, subjects, I've shared with you what some of those people have said, and, and I want to do the same today. J.C. Ryle, and that may or may not be a name that you know, this would be the early, I'm sorry, the late 17, 18th century, the late 18th century, but listen to what he wrote. What is the reason some believers are so much brighter and holier than others? So we know that that's the case. Some believers just seem to be walking a better path than other believers. Why is that? And he answered the question this way. I believe the difference in 19 out of 20 cases arises from different habits about private prayer. He says the difference in 19 out of 20, that's 95% of the cases, is their attitude and their actions surrounding their commitment to prayer. He goes on to say, I believe that those who are not eminently holy pray little, and those who are eminently holy pray much. He said, it's my observation, his observation, both from scripture and from life, that the thing that makes the difference in overcoming persistent sins is a person's private prayer life. And so let's dig into scripture and see what the Bible has to say. Hebrews chapter four, and I wanna get a little bit of a running start. We're gonna focus on verse 16, but let's, let's start in verse 12. He says, for the word of God is living and effective, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now, I start with that verse because I want you to see that the writer is talking about sin. He says that the word of God is able to bring conviction to our hearts when we sin. A person who thinks or believes that they don't struggle with persistent sins is the person who doesn't spend much time in God's Word. God's Word is a tool that the Holy Spirit uses to convict us of our sin. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about sin in the life of a believer. Now let's look at verse 13. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of, of him to whom we must give an account. So here he reminds us that as Christians, though the penalty of our sin has been destroyed, we will give an account for how we live our lives. Now that's a little bit scary, right? The, whole, the, the Bible uh, brings conviction of our sin, awareness of our sin, 
the Bible says that we will give an account of how we live our lives. Now let's, let's continue on. Verse 14, therefore, since those things are true, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. He says, don't give up, hold fast, stay in the game, because we have Jesus. We have Jesus. Jesus makes all the difference. And he's going to tell us why in the next verse. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So here's what's so wonderful about Jesus. Now, you've heard me say this before, and you know this. The whole Bible is about how wonderful is Jesus. And this verse, this passage especially, is about how wonderful is Jesus. And so he tells us here that, the, that Jesus is the high priest, and that's a good thing. And he's a high priest both because of his relationship to the Father and his relationship to us. So let's look at those two things. What has he done Godward, Fatherward, if that's a word, and what has he done for us, toward us? Well, for us, it says that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us because he has been tempted in every way as we have been tempted, yet he hasn't sinned. And so if you struggle with some temptation, and you do, uh, know that Jesus struggled in a similar way, in the same way you could, you could say. Jesus struggled with with loneliness. Jesus struggled with fear. Jesus would have struggled with all of the sins that we might name. In this, in this crowd here this morning, if we listed all of the persistent sins that we struggle with, a lot of different sins, Jesus struggled with those same things. He was tempted. Satan worked on him. The, the, the world around him brought temptations to him. Jesus was tempted. He can sympathize with us. Have you ever had a Oh, a real hardship in life, maybe you've suffered some great loss or maybe somebody in your family, somebody you very dearly cared for passed away or maybe, maybe you lost your job or maybe you're diagnosed with uh, some, uh, some dreaded disease and, and you just needed to talk to somebody who knew what you were going through. You know what that's like? You just needed to reach out. You just needed to, you, you, didn't, you didn't need to just talk to anybody you needed to talk with somebody who knew. Well, here Jesus says, I know. Whatever you're going through, no matter how difficult it might be, Jesus says, I know, and I've been there, and I can sympathize with you. So Jesus, this is what's so amazing about him. He is the high priest. That means he is the one that stands between us and the Father. And when we look at him from our perspective, we see a one, we see the one who can sympathize with us because he has been tempted in every way that we have been tempted, yet without sin. Now, from God's perspective, when God looks at Jesus in this relationship, in this high priest role connecting us to the Father, what does God see? God sees the one who has paid the penalty for all of our sins. See, when God looks at me, he doesn't see me as a sinner guilty of sin, deserving death. God sees me through Jesus. And when God sees me through Jesus, he first sees the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And I am forgiven. The Bible says I am the righteousness of God because God sees me through Jesus. 
And so from God's perspective, Jesus is the one who died for our sins. See, the only hope we have of having a relationship with God is not our doing better, trying harder, keeping the rules, because we've all been guilty of sin and will be guilty of sin. Our only hope is Jesus. And the only hope you have, and people come to church, I know for all different kinds of reasons, but oftentimes people come because they want to, you know, earn a little bit of favor with God. They want to, you know, build up a few brownie points with God. But the truth is the only brownie point that counts is what Jesus did. And the way we have a right relationship with God is we trust what Jesus has done for us. And when we trust that, then we are seen by the Father through Jesus and we are forgiven because our sins have been, have been paid for. Jesus is the high priest, the one who stands between us, guilty of sin, and God, the holy righteous God. And he, because he sympathizes with us, because he satisfies the wrath of God toward God, Jesus can reconcile us with the Father. Now, that's what verse all of that's in verse 15. That's a, that's a lot. Uh, but now let's, let's look at verse 16. Therefore, now we see that word over and over here. Uh, here, therefore, refers to what we just talked about. Because Jesus is the high priest, because he, is, he sympathizes with us, because he satisfies the Father. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, verse 16, that's, that's the point of the whole passage here. And really, it's just the first few words of verse 16, although all of it is very important. He says, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace. How do we approach the throne of grace? Have you thought about that? What is, he, what is he talking about? Let us approach? He's not talking about us getting in our cars and driving somewhere. He's, he, he's not talking about us ascending into heaven somehow. What is he talking about when he says, let us approach the throne of grace? He's talking about prayer. Here he gives us some very simple instructions about how we can have a relationship with the Father through prayer. And so I want us, it's, a, it's an easy to understand verse, but I want us to break it down into four parts and I want us to study verse 16. In fact, I've paraphrased it. I told you to do this some, suggested you do this some when you meditate on scripture, right? We talked about last week, how do you, how do, you do more than just read scripture? How do you really meditate on it? And I suggested that one of the things you could do is to summarize it, is to paraphrase it. And so when I was meditating on verse 16 this week, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive help and find mercy, uh, grace to help us in time of need. I put that in my own words, and here they are. Therefore, because of what Jesus has done for us, paid the penalty for sin, and because Jesus can sympathize with us because he has, he has been tempted, therefore, pray. It says in the scripture, approach the throne of grace, but I know that means pray. So therefore, pray unhindered. He says boldly. We'll talk about exactly what that means in a moment. But I put unhindered, pray unhindered, and find undeserved help at the perfect time. That's my summary, my paraphrase of verse 16. So let's work through those four things. Pray unhindered, find help 
at the perfect time. First of all, pray. Well, people ask me sometimes, if the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same gods, have you ever wondered that? Now, if you've been in church a long time, you know that that's just not one of those questions you ask. Of course, they're the same. But I think we still wonder sometimes because we look at the God of the Old Testament and we see how his character is often described and it's described very harshly. He's, he's described as a God of justice and a God of holiness and a God of wrath. I, I, I think about Exodus 19. This is uh, when... Moses was uh, communicating with God and it describes some of the things that happened. It says on the third day when morning came, there was thunder and lightning. Now imagine if this described your prayer life, if it was really like this, uh, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people of the camp shuddered. Imagine if you got up in the morning, you began to pray and there was lightning and the house was shaking and you heard trumpets and a loud noise. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. And then it says, and this isn't meant to be funny, but it, it, it is to me, I apologize. It says, then the Lord directed Moses, go down and warn the people not to come up the mountain. <laughs> like they needed a warning at that point. I mean, the whole mountain is shaking, it's on fire. They feel the heat of the furnace. They hear God speaking in a thunder. Uh, I'm not going up the mountain. I don't know about you. I wouldn't even need that warning. And so God is presented very often in the Old Testament as a, a, a God of wrath. Now, that's not the whole picture in the Old Testament. In fact, I'm reading a book right now about the loving kindness of God in the Old Testament. And if the Lord allows, I want to I want to preach on the loving kindness of God in the Old Testament um, on December 8th. That's going to sort of be our introduction to, to to Christmas. But but much of the uh, much of the uh, Old Testament does describe God as a God of wrath. And then we think about the New Testament, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we think it just doesn't seem that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament have the same character. But if you study more closely, you see that actually the, the character of God as it's described, is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The difference is not the character of God. The difference is our access to God. Our access to God changed when Jesus came on the scene. Before Jesus, in the Old Testament, there was no direct or very little direct access to God. The access was limited in some ways, and God's throne was seen as a throne of judgment. But after Christ. Now the access to God is no longer through a priest. If you want to talk to God, you don't have to come see a priest to do that for you. It's no longer through a priest. It's no longer limited to a time and a place as it often was in the Old Testament. Uh, while God's throne is still a throne of judgment and justice, it's also, as we see here in verse 16, it is a throne of grace. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace. The throne of grace. Because of Jesus. This is so amazing. And I know you know this, but I want you to be amazed with it again. 
Because of Jesus, we have access to the throne of God. I, I think we, we should stop and just imagine this. Now, you have to be careful with your imagination. Uh, this is uh, sometimes where people get off into heresy. We can't imagine something that's not described for us in Scripture uh, because we'll come up with something that's just not true or biblical. But the Scripture gives us some, some ways we can imagine coming into the, into the presence of God. So, so let me walk you through this. First of all, the Bible says in Psalm 100, that uh, we are to enter his gates with thanksgiving and to enter his courts with praise. So just imagine, imagine you physically coming into the presence of God and, and, and we don't know what it, the room's going to look like or the space is going to look like. We don't know what the throne looks like or God looks like. Don't imagine those things. But imagine what your attitude will be. You come into the presence of God with, with thanksgiving. You're just overwhelmed with how good God has been. And you come into the presence of God with praise because God is so holy and beautiful and righteous and you're just overwhelmed. You're coming into the presence of God. And like I said, we can't really imagine what God looks like. That wouldn't be a proper thing to do. But we can imagine the heart of God. As we come into his presence, we know that God is eager to help us. Imagine that. You're coming into the presence. You're overwhelmed with thanksgiving and praise. But God is eager to help. That's uh, in verse 16. Uh, God sympathizes with our weaknesses. That's in verse 15. He feels compassion toward us. That's in Matthew 9, 36. He desires to give us comfort. That's in 2 Corinthians 1, 3. He's gonna be patient with us. Isn't that good news? 2 Peter 3, 9. He is eager to forgive us. 1 John 1, 9. He is ready to give wisdom and direction. James 1, 5. Let's remember that we can approach the throne of grace boldly. We can pray. And when we pray, we come into the presence of God. Now, it, it's important to understand, if we're going to talk about prayer in the context of overcoming persistent sins, I want you to know the details. How exactly does this praying help us change? Is it just something we, we do, we just pray, or, 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 is it, or is it really change us? How does praying help us overcome persistent sins? Let me give you three or four ways. First of all, prayer calls on God to work on our behalf in overcoming persistent sins. Now, we said that overcoming persistent sins is not just about praying for it, uh, but prayer does arouse God to work on our behalf. Matthew 6, 13, this is an admonition Jesus gives us when he teaches us to pray. He says, pray like this, say, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So God is involved in this and we can pray and God will, God will, God will respond. The Bible says in Psalm 19, 13, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. And it goes on further, but, but here we see more evidence that God will respond and bring changes in our lives if we pray. There's another way that prayer affects our uh, sanctification. Prayer changes our focus from the things of the world to the things of God. We see this in Romans 12 too and other places. When we pray, it lessens our desires for the things of the world, and it strengthens our desires for the things of God. 
Think about your hunger, physical hunger. If you are starving to death, I mean, none of us probably have ever been starving to death, but imagine if you really were starving to death, what would you be willing to eat? You would eat anything, right? If you hadn't had anything to eat in a couple of weeks and you were literally starving to death, it wouldn't matter whether they brought you green beans or collard greens or, or, or cauliflower. I guess that's the worst food that God has ever made. It, it wouldn't matter what they brought you. If you were literally starving to death and, and it were crawling with bugs, you would eat it, right? But if you've just been satisfied with a great hearty meal, and then they bring some uh, unhealthy food to you, would you be tempted to eat that? No, you've just been satisfied. Now, Satan brings us these temptations and he pushes them on us. And, and, and they're not things that, that ordinarily we should want or desire or chase after. But, but one of the reasons we do is just because we're so hungry. We're, we're, we're not physically hungry, but we're so spiritually hungry that we'll swallow anything that Satan gives us. But if we will connect with God in a consistent time of prayer, then we will be satisfied from heaven and our focus will be more on the things of God. We will not be tempted by the offerings of the evil one. Number three, letter C, depending on how it's written in your outline, prayer is a conduit for the strength of God to flow into our lives. Psalm 138.3, on the day I called, that speaks of prayer, on the day I called, you answered me and you increased strength within me. Prayer will make you stronger as you, as you wrestle with temptation. And then letter D, prayer begins the flow of wisdom that leads us away from temptation. I love Psalm 139, especially the last couple of verses. Search me, God, and know my heart and test me and know my concerns and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The Bible says when we pray that God will open our eyes and he will teach us things and those things will help us to avoid persistent, persistent sins. You know, the reason we sin, I don't know if you've thought about this. I maybe thought about it too much, but why is it that I sin when I know I am dead to sin why is it that I sin? And I, I think that the logical answer is this. There is a disconnect between sin and consequences. In our minds, there's this disconnect. Now, we know intellectually that sin always has consequences, right? And the consequences, the sin will not be worth the consequences. The Bible talks about the pleasure of sin for a season, but the Bible talks about the consequences. There will always be consequences to sin. You'll always regret it eventually. But there's a disconnect. When I sin, the consequences don't seem like such a big deal. If I were smarter or if I were more spiritually wise, which comes through prayer, then I'd be able to make the connection between my sin and my consequences, and it would, it would give me the, the strength I need to overcome sin. Imagine this. So uh, if, uh, if I eat a donut, now eventually I'm going to gain 20 pounds, okay? That's been my experience in life, but it's not immediate. Now, if I went to the donut store this morning and I ate a donut and bang, I gained 20 pounds. I mean, right there in the store, I took a bite, I gained 20 pounds. I'm telling you, I'm not taking another bite. 
I mean, I would make the connection between the donuts and, and the consequences, and that would be the end. But the problem is, in my mind, those things are very separate. So if a person struggles with lust, or a person struggles with anger, and, and you know that that's sin and there are consequences, but the consequences are so often so far down the road. And so you sin and you don't see the consequences, but if, if somehow you could see, well, I sin and it hurts my marriage. I sin and it destroys a relationship. If we could see that nexus, how do we do that? Well, God says he'll give us wisdom when we pray. So if we want to overcome these persistent sins, we have to approach the throne of grace. That just means we need to pray. Now, the second thing we see in this, in this simple verse is that we need to come boldly before the throne of grace. And the word I use for that when I paraphrase, paraphrase the verse, pardon me, is unhindered. What does it mean to come boldly? It doesn't mean to be rude. It doesn't mean to storm into heaven and demand your way. It doesn't even mean to pray bold prayers, though that's taught in other places in Scripture, and that's true. But boldly here just means not to be hindered. Don't let your prayers be hindered. You know, sometimes, not sometimes, all the time, uh, the, the way to understand one passage of Scripture, if we struggle to understand, is to turn to some other passage of Scripture. The best teacher of scripture is scripture. The best commentary on scripture is scripture. So let me just read to you a couple of things that Jesus said uh, that I think will, will teach us uh, what it means to come boldly, to come unhindered. Uh, there are two stories. There are, there are a few verses apiece, but I, let me just read them quickly. First is in Luke 11, if you just want to make a notation. Jesus said this, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Now this would have been a big deal. In those cases, in those days, uh, every house was a one bedroom house. It didn't matter how many people were there, there was just one bedroom. And it was also the living room and the kitchen and it was just one room. And so everybody would be bedded down in the one room, mom, dad, all the kids, the aunts, the uncles, the grandparents, these were big families. And so if you've had kids, if you have kids, you know that sometimes the greatest task of your day is to get those kids to finally go to sleep. I can remember uh, putting our girls to sleep and then literally belly crawling out of the room because the slightest change of shadows would wake them up for the next two hours. It was so hard sometimes to get my girls to go to sleep. Well, so here's a man and he's gotten all of his kids to sleep finally. I mean, he's probably wrestled with them for two hours, but they're all in the same room and he's in the middle. And you, you know, if you were a dad in the middle of that, you don't budge, right? Because you know, if you do, everybody's awake and you know, grandparents are criticizing your, your wife and your, you know, I mean, it's just be a mess. So now somebody knocks on the door and says, hey, would you get up and give me some bread? And he says, no, I'm not going to give you any bread. Uh, but look at verse seven. Then he will answer from the inside and say, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you though, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him what he needs. 
They think, well, how is that a picture of God? Is God perturbed that we wake him up when, when we pray and he's finally got all the angels asleep and here we are praying and we've just uh, upset heaven? No, it doesn't mean that. It's telling us that we shouldn't be hindered by thinking that God doesn't care or God won't help. So, so the picture in that little parable is that's what a selfish person would do. So imagine what the good God of heaven would do. Don't, don't feel like you're pestering God. No, come boldly. Don't, don't feel like you're, you're, you're bringing things that don't matter to him or not important enough. No, come boldly. Knock on that door. And then let me, just, just one, more, one more story that Jesus told. It's also in Luke. This is in chapter 18. I'll read quickly. He says, now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. So this is one of these parables where Jesus tells them ahead of time because sometimes they didn't understand exactly what the parable means. Pray and don't quit praying. And then here's the parable. Verse two, there was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. So there's this judge and he was a bad judge. And this lady keeps coming to him asking for justice. He's not interested because he's not a good judge. And so he ignores her. Verse four, for a while he was unwilling but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people yet, because the widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she does not wear me out by her persistent coming. Now again, you think, well, how does that a picture of God? Well, God's not uh, going to be worn down by your aggravating request. But what it's saying is if an unjust judge will respond to the persistent pleas of a, of a person seeking justice, how much more would God respond to us? We, we must not be hindered thinking we're bothering God. And then the second parable reminds us that we must not be hindered because we've already prayed about something before. We should continue to pray. So what does it mean when it says, let us approach the throne of grace boldly? It means that we need to pray because prayer makes a difference in our persistent sin and we need to do it unhindered. Let nothing keep us from prayer. And then it says we'll find undeserved help. You know, prayer is not a one-way street. Uh, if we say, when we say the Pledge of Allegiance uh, to, the, to the flag, well, that is a one-way expression. Now, it's, it's a good thing. It's an important thing. Uh, please don't tell somebody that the pastor doesn't believe in the Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> I do, and I love our country, and we should say the Pledge of Allegiance, and we should mean it from our hearts. We should be thankful for the country that God has blessed us with, absolutely. But you know, when you, when you, when you pledge allegiance to the flag, nothing happens back to you. I mean, the flag isn't like some deity that hears your prayers or hears your pledge and then responds. I mean, the country doesn't respond. It's not that if you, if you pledge, then this will happen. But if you don't pledge, then something else will happen. No, it's a, it's a one-way thing. It's a good thing. It's a proper thing that we should do, but, but it's a one-way thing. But prayer is not like a pledge. Prayer is not one way. Prayer is two ways. When you pledge allegiance to the flag, nothing happens back. But when you pray, something happens back. God hears your prayer. He's listening. He's interested. And he, he responds. Things change when we pray. We change when we pray. And so he says here in verse 16, notice it again. He says that we're to come boldly before the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us. 
We need to pray because God will respond. One of my favorite stories in scripture is in Mark chapter nine. It's actually in three of the gospels. But I love, as it's, uh, I love how it's written in Mark chapter nine. Jesus is away from the disciples and a father brings a son, brings his son, uh, because uh, his son is possessed with a demon. And he asks the disciples if they could cast out the demon. And they say they can, and they try, and they fail. And they're pretty frustrated. Jesus shows up uh, near the end of the story after the disciples have failed, and the father uh, makes his request to Jesus. Jesus casts out the demon. So almost the end of the story. But then the disciples go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, why were we unable to do this? The, the disciples had cast out demons in other situations, so they wanted to know, why, why did we fail? And, and listen to the, to the description. It says in Mark 9, 28, after he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them this, listen, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Jesus said to the disciples, there are going to be some problems in life that are only going to come out by prayer. And so I looked in that passage when I studied this, what prayer is he talking about? I want to know what this prayer sounds like. But there is no prayer in the passage that he refers to. He's not talking about a specific prayer. He's talking about a life of prayer. Jesus is saying, I'm a man of prayer. And some things you're only going to be able to solve if you are a man or woman of prayer. We need to, we need to go to the Father, and we need to do it boldly, unhindered, and we will find help. And then the, the fourth thing, we, we should do this at the perfect time, or help will come, I should say, at the perfect time. You, you notice the, the passage doesn't say to pray at the perfect time. It says pray, and then at the perfect time, help will come. Do you see the difference? You don't wait and pray when there's a need. You pray, and when there's a need, then help will come. I think too often we have a Walmart prayer strategy. Now, you, you've been to Walmart. I'm thankful that there is a Walmart. I don't enjoy going to Walmart, but I'm glad I can. So what, what, is, what do you do when you go to Walmart? I never go to Walmart, and I'm sure the same is true for you, just to, to enjoy my afternoon. I, my wife and I are never sitting around the house saying, well, what do you want to do this afternoon? What are we going to do on Saturday? Well, I know, let's just go to Walmart. We'll just hang out at Walmart for two or three hours. Now, when I go to Walmart, it does look like some people are doing that, but, but none of you. When I go to Walmart, I have a specific task. I'm going to buy something. I want to get it. I want to get out. I want to get in the shortest line. I want to pay for it, and I want to get to my car and get out of there if I can get out of the parking lot. Uh, I, Walmart is, I'm thankful for it, but it's, I don't want to spend any more time there than I have to. I mean, even if you want a window shop, that's not where you go, Right. You know, you don't have relatives come in. You know, well, well, let's go down. We've got the neatest Walmart. Let's just go spend, spend the afternoon at the Nacogdoches Walmart. No, you only go there if you have a need. Now, that's fine with Walmart, but that's not how we ought to pray. And too many people, too many times, all of us, we pray like we go to Walmart. We pray when there's a need. And we, we should pray when there's a need. I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't pray then. But what we ought to do, instead of having a Walmart strategy, we ought to just pray. What the passage says, not pray when there's a need, but pray. And when there is a need, you'll find help. You'll find the grace, the grace of God. You, know, you hear people say sometimes, 
And I want to be careful with this, choose my words wisely. Uh, but you hear people say sometimes, it wasn't until I went through some tragedy that I learned to pray. You heard people say that? Something will you know, have cancer or somebody will pass away. Or, I mean, I guess there are a lot of different kinds of tragedies or difficulties. But they'll say, you know, maybe marriage is in trouble, kids are rebelling. And, and they'll say, it was through that that I learned to pray. Well, good. And, and, and listen to me. That's good. I'm glad you learned to pray in those times. But listen, church. I don't want to live the kind of life where the only way God can teach me to pray is to let me go through some hard time. Uh, there'll be hard times in life, but let me be someone who, when hard times come, they find me already on my knees. Let, 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 me, let me be the person who prays, not at the perfect time, but just prays. And then at the, at the needy time, uh, the Holy Spirit will, will come. Now, I have uh, much more to say. We'll go, you're going to have to listen fast because I can't leave this out. Now, you, you've, you've heard uh, sermons, Sunday school lessons. You know, I, I doubt I've said anything in this sermon that you've not known if you go to church, if you come to church often. Uh, but the truth is that while me, we, we know these things about prayer, we still struggle with our prayer lives. Why is it that we struggle? Why is it that Christians, some of us have been a Christian for decades. Why do we struggle with prayer? Well, let me tell you that, that it seems when you look at the people who excel in prayer, uh, biblically, but uh, through the last 2,000 years of history, the people who have written on prayer, and, and even in a contemporary sense, the people today who excel in prayer, that many of them, not all of them, they're exceptions, but many of them have one thing in common that people who struggle in prayer do not do. Do you know what the one thing is that seems to be a common denominator of those who excel in the matter of praying? Journaling. Let me take a minute or two, and we'll say more about this next week. What does it mean and why is it important to journal our our prayers. Well, uh, if, if this is not a command of Scripture. So we have to be really careful that we don't say you've got to do this because the Scripture doesn't say you have to do it. It's not commanded in Scripture, but it is modeled in Scripture. And so many of the Psalms that we read are simply the prayer journals of David. Uh, in fact, I'll, I don't have much time, but let me just read one to you. Uh, Psalm 13. Listen to this. David just sat down and he's just writing out his prayer. And I love Psalm 13 because I, this is a reality in my life. This has happened more times than I can count. He says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? Uh, how long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me? Agony in my mind, how long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me and answer me, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have triumphed over him and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. He says, oh, woe is me, Father, won't you do something? And then there's a pause. And then there's two more verses in the psalm. He says, but... 
I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. So here's what happened. And, and, I, and I've experienced this. So he, he's writing down his prayers and he's lamenting the fact that, that it just seems like his problems are too big and God is too far away. And then just partway through his prayer, everything shifts. And God comforts him. And God reminds him that he can be trusted. And the last two lines of his, of his prayer are, oh, Lord, I know I can trust you. Oh, Lord, I know you'll come through for me. And see, as he is journaling his prayers, he, he experiences the, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I, I, I plan to read to you from Lamentations. The, that's a book we don't read from very often. But the book of Lamentations is the prayer journal of the prophet Jeremiah. Did you know that? That's, that's, that's what it is. I often read a prayer book called Valley of Vision. And I'll, I'll talk more about that maybe at another time. But it's, it's, if I need to prime the pump of my prayers in the morning, I'll open up and read where these people have journaled some of their, some of their praise. Why, why, should we, why should we do a prayer journal? Well, first of all, because it slows us down. It keeps you from moving too quickly through a list. I don't know about you, but, but if I just look at a list and I say, oh, God bless Andre and God bless Donna and God bless Raina and God bless, uh, and I, I can get through a list pretty fast, but that's not praying. But if I'll slow down and I'll write down a sentence or two about what I'm asking the Lord to do in Andre's life, then I stay focused if I go slowly. In, in fact, uh, the North American Mission Board, they have, uh, it's a mission organization uh, mostly church planters around, around the country. And they, they give a name every week of some church planner. And I, I pray for that person. But I used to just pray, just mention their names. I don't know any of these people. They don't know me. But my prayer would just be too fast. I mean, it, 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 not that God can't hear that fast, but it was just too simple. God bless that person in Indianapolis this week. And I just move on to the next thing. But I started um, about a year ago. I now send them an email. And I said, I don't know them, they don't know me, and most of them don't respond. I don't even know if they get the emails, but I'll send them an email, and I'll write out three or four sentences of what I'm praying for them in their ministry, in their city, and what they're doing. And, and I write that, it slows me down. So number one, do a prayer journal because it slows you down. Number two, because it eliminates uh, distractions. How many of us have started out praying, and three minutes later we realize we're thinking about something we're not even praying anymore? We don't even know when we stopped. It just, Lord, thank you, thank you, and I need this, and take care of that, and and you're praiseworthy, and then and then we're thinking, what am I going to have for dinner tomorrow night? And and we don't even know where it transitioned. We just got distracted. This is one of the biggest reasons why most Christians can't pray for any length of time. We just get distracted. If you will write it down, you'll find the distraction just fades away. Let her see. We, we provide a history to review for reminders of God's faithfulness. Uh, I don't know if you're a Facebook person, but they occasionally will remind you of some event in your life that maybe you posted about a long time ago. My, my wife texted me on the 25th of October, a couple of weeks ago, um, because 10 years prior to that, to the day I had done something that was really hard for me. Probably wouldn't have been hard for you, but it was hard for me. I had decided to do it a year ahead of time. I'd worked on it almost every day for a year, and I did it uh, on October 25th, 2009. And so it popped up on her Facebook thing. So she sent me a message, you know, you remember where we were 10 years ago and what happened, and, and we reminisced a little bit. And I thought, well, that's an encouragement. But you know what's even more special? Not looking at 
a Facebook reminder from 10 years ago, but to flip through your prayer journal. And I actually did this some this morning. This is, uh, this is a prayer journal. Well, this day is February 13th, 2004. And uh, so I just read through some of that this morning. What an encouragement to see how I prayed for some things and God proved himself faithful in those areas. And, and, and we journal so that we will have a history of God's faithfulness. So how do you journal? Very quickly. There's no one right way. Uh, because, the God doesn't, because the Lord doesn't uh, tell us how to do this, it just models it in scripture, you can do this your own way. The simplest way is just to make lists. And so right now, in most of my prayer mornings, I just, I just make a list. Here is uh, October 24th of uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so I wrote down, I, I learned three things as I meditated on scripture and I wrote down those three things. Uh, then I, I wrote down one thing I was praising the Lord for that day, one thing I was thankful for that day, and then what my biggest need was as I prayed. And so, but you do it your way, but the easiest way to do it is just to make a list. Pray and make a list. Uh, it, it, the, the final step would be to do free-handed prayer and, and just write out your prayers, maybe like this. And when I do that, oftentimes it starts as complete sentences. It ends up just being words. Nobody's going to read these. These aren't for my kids to read one day. They will never be in a book. No, you can't see any of them. They're just between me and God. So I don't care if the sentences aren't complete or if you can't, if they're not legible. When you look at those people through history who pray best, who are most consistent. Listen, they have supercharged their prayer with, with journaling. Just so your head bowed and eyes closed, I'll say more about that next week. You know, it's our desire that we, that we could overcome some of these persistent sins. We have prayed and we have promised and we have made little progress. But if we will if we will engage in these spiritual disciplines, these God-prescribed, Holy Spirit-empowered habits, we will see God change our lives for his glory in so many ways. Father, help us today to embrace a greater, deeper, more consistent life of prayer so that you will be honored and we will be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.